Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining me today. Adam Shapiro was kind enough to join me at UBC during his recent visit to Vancouver in order to talk about his new book, Trying Biology, The Scopes Trial, Textbooks, and the Anti-Evolution Movement in American Schools. This came out in 2013 with the University of Chicago Press. This book takes an event, the Scopes Trial, the very famous Scopes Trial that many of us have heard about and might think we understand, an event that's been popularly dramatized in forms from film to fiction and many other forms beyond, and really turns the event and turns our understanding of it on its head. In doing that, the book really helps us use this event, the Scopes Trial, and our new understanding of it to rethink lots of the circumstances that Shapiro argues brought about this constellation, this convergence of different interests of different kind of actors in a setting that ultimately has become very, very well known and really has become one of the most famous accounts in the history of science for lots and lots of people. So what Shapiro is doing in this book is taking what might on the surface and for many people seem to be all about a conflict between science and religion, between evolution and anti-evolution, and shows the fine-grained texture of the kinds of debates and circumstances that brought about this trial that really sit in very, very different histories from the histories that we typically associate with science with a capital S and religion with a capital R. Shapiro's book looks at the ways that revolutions in pedagogy, arguments over textbook industries, textbook reform, and different ways of constituting what biology was as a discipline and shows the path by which we came to what's usually interpreted as this explosive courtroom setting, but in this story, which becomes kind of just one of many, many, many different really fascinating points along the road of what ultimately becomes about not just science, not just evolution, not just religion, but really about what it meant to teach and to learn about the natural world in different localities in 20th century America. It's a story that has ramifications for not just the way we understand the history of biology, but also the way we approach and integrate an informed understanding of our own uh, experience and policies toward what seem to be conflicts between science and religion in contemporary policy debates right now. It's really interesting. It's super timely and relevant to a lot of what we're seeing emerge out of, again, what seem to be conflicts in the news right now. And it's a really, really fine-grained analysis. It was a pleasure talking with with Adam about it. And I hope you enjoy both the book and Adam's and my conversation. We're here today to talk with Adam Shapiro about his new book, Trying Biology, The Scopes Trial, Textbooks, and the Anti-Evolution Movement in American Schools. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Adam, and thank you so much for taking the time in your brief trip to Vancouver to talk with me today about your book. 
Thank you, Carla. It's great to be here, and I'm really glad that it worked out that I could do it in person. Me too. Me too. So for our listeners, we're actually on the campus of UBC, where you spent some time. Yes, I was a postdoc here for two years. Uh, It was my first job after finishing grad school, and uh, it's nice to be back in Vancouver and seeing a lot of old friends and uh, colleagues. Great. So let's actually stay along this path and talk a little bit about the past. So, Adam, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you in the first place to the history of science? How did you find your way to that field specifically? Um, I, it's a I, tricky question, I think. Um, I started out as an undergraduate studying physics and uh, at Columbia and decided most of the way through there that I didn't want to continue that pathway um, you know, professionally. And I keep, I keep thinking, well, religion was the next thing listed alphabetically in the course catalog. So I ended up sort of double, double concentrating in physics and religious studies. And it seemed almost natural with that set of uh, fields that I would go into some sort of science studies or history and philosophy of science uh, position. So I think I initially thought that I would end up doing something more in the philosophy of science or in science and religion. Um, and it wasn't until I got to graduate school that I began to realize that the questions that I was most interested in were not so much questions of which side science or religion is right or wrong, but why do people believe the things that they believe? Um, And so that became for me more of a historical question than a philosophical one. I was more interested in what people believe than whether those beliefs were right. Um, And I ended up doing this. So the book that we're talking about today looks specifically at late 19th and early 20th century American debates over evolution over biology education and over textbooks. It's a really fascinating way into a topic within the history of science that readers may come to this with thinking that if they have some degree of familiarity with, but after reading this realize they didn't really understand it at all. It's a fascinating case study and I'm very much looking forward to talking with you about lots of aspects of it and of your treatment of it. So before we get there though into the book at hand, what brought you to this particular focus within the larger rubric of science and religion and science studies and history? Well, so when I went, while I was a graduate student at Chicago, um, I started putting together a syllabus uh, along with a friend of mine to co-teach a course on science and religion in American legal history. Um, and it was in, we were working on the syllabus for that, and I basically at that point said, well, it would be interesting to have students look at the textbooks from the Scopes trial, because obviously we're going to cover the Scopes trial in a class with that subject. Um, but then I started looking at the textbooks that came out after the Scopes trial and started thinking, well, why, why are these changes that are being made, um, why are they acceptable? Why is that the way that they did it? And, you know, I actually just went out to the archives of one of the largest textbook publishers, which is, becomes one of the main sources of, of archival information for the book. Um, and by the time I got back from that trip, I had a new topic to work on. Um, so I sort of stumbled into it. So for a listener um, who, as, as difficult as this might be, given that this is the focus of a, a you know, more than 100-page book that you've written, for listeners who may come to this conversation and um, not know, what does he mean by the scope trial? What the heck yeah. was that? Can you, get, can you just sort of give a super brief yeah. introduction um, to, to those listeners? Absolutely. So the brief version would be to say that in 1925, the state of Tennessee in the United States passed the law prohibiting the teaching of evolution. Um, and John Scopes uh, was a teacher at a, sm- at a high school in a small town, Dayton, Tennessee, 
and agreed to stand as the um, defendant in a test case in which he chose to be indicted for violating this act with it, with the idea being that he would be convicted and that the constitutionality of the law would be contested on appeal. Um, what I try to argue in the book is that this is not just a story about science and religion coming to a head as the participants of the trial themselves frequently tried to make it that way. But uh, also seeing this as, as a, an important episode in the history of science education in America. It was also a, an important recent episode um, in the program Drunk History. So if anybody <laughs> has never heard of it, um, you might see the, um, the trial as depicted on that program. But also um, some listeners may be familiar with the film Inherit the Wind yes. that a lot of us saw you know, growing up or at some point in our lives. And that's, for some people, probably their main um, knowledge of an, an interaction with the trial as, a, as an object. And I think especially because debates over the teaching of evolution have continued to come up in, in recent years and uh, in various incarnations, either in um, civil lawsuits arising from somebody wanting to teach an alternative to evolution or members of school boards considering altering the curriculum, there's frequently sort of references back to the Scopes trial as this foundational incident in the history of of that controversy. And um, I think the number of trials that have been called Scopes 2 means that we ought to be up to about Scopes 8 or 9 by now. Um, But it always seems to come back to the Scopes trial as this sort of foundational event in American religion and science. So, Adam, you mentioned that this was actually something that emerged for you as a graduate student, and Mm -hmm. I understand that this began as a dissertation project before it became this book. So can you talk a little bit about that transformation? Were there any major um, transformations of the project, any major surprises along the way? What was the process like for you? Um, I I, I think I knew by the time I had finished the dissertation and defended it that there were some serious changes that needed to happen between the dissertation and the book, um, there were some some questions that I really wanted to to address that the dissertation hadn't addressed, um, and that there were some new chapters that needed to be written, and perhaps some stuff that needed to come out. Um, some of that I took out fairly quickly and started working on fairly quickly, and then other things when the book was going through. Uh, getting feedback and peer review and things like that, it became clear that some of the arguments might stand alone fine as something separate, but didn't really fit the main thread of the book, and that the the book needed to be a little bit more streamlined. Mm -hmm. Um, And so some of the arguments that I was trying to make about the transformation in American religion about this were secondary or or sort of set aside to focus more on these issues about the way science education and the regulation of educational publishing um, really did come to the fore in the run-up to the Scopes trial. Great. Thank you. So for listeners who may not be super familiar with the case, I'm going to narrate a little bit as we move into the body of the book itself in the first chapter. So the basic background that we'll start with, during the 1924-25 school year, and you lay this out at the beginning of the book, Mm -hmm. John Scopes was actually, he's a substitute teacher. He's filling in for the regular biology teacher at Rhea County Central High School in Dayton, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. The final exam's coming up, as you describe at the beginning of the book, 
And this John Scopes, this, you know, teacher who's filling in for another guy, he assigns reading from a very particular textbook. And we'll talk about this textbook and why it's important and why the author is important later on in our conversation. This is a textbook by George Hunter from 1914 called A Civic Biology. And he assigns this to prepare students for the final exam. So, again, we'll get there. Now, what follows is, as we've talked about already a little bit, one of the most well-known accounts in the history of science and of the history of 20th century America, the history of the interaction between science and religion, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so this is just to kind of lay the groundwork for where we're going, and we'll talk about the details of many aspects of what I just said um, Mm -hmm. over the course of our conversation, I'm sure. So I want to start out by asking you a little bit about something that you lay out as one of your, one of the important components of what you're arguing and of how your approach to this topic differs from previous or other approaches to this topic right, right early on in the first chapter. You're very, very clear early in the book that your account of the apparent conflict emerging from and surrounding the Scopes trial is not rooted in assumptions about the fundamental incompatibility of science and religion. Okay? So you talk about um, explicitly the importance about or the importance, rather, of looking beyond science and religion to understand how the Scopes trial became such an important sort of touchstone in the history of science and religion. Okay, so could mm-hmm. you talk about this a little bit? At what point in your, specifically in your research, um, and, you know, talk about any aspect of this you like, but at what point did this become clear to you as something that you really wanted to argue and that was going to be part of your contribution to this field? Yeah, um I think once I be, it became clear to me that I was interested in the study of science and religion from a historical perspective, um, it's interesting because in some ways the, his, the history of religion and science has had um, almost a sort of recapitulation of itself where um, almost any recent work in the history of religion and science begins by saying, we used to believe that there was this fundamental conflict, and we no longer believe that. But we need to at least acknowledge this, this so-called conflict thesis before we then move on to recognizing that the interactions between religion and science have been much more complex. And complexity is the word that frequently gets introduced as a result. Um, that sometimes some sciences and some religions get along perfectly well, and then sometimes they do conflict, and sometimes they sort of sort of stand at kind of crossroads to one another but don't directly interact. Um, there's been sort of an increased effort to sort of refine the historiography and and expand the historiography of religion and science as something taken together. Um, And I think that what I'm trying to do in the book is to push some, push that in a little bit of even further in some of the same directions to say, it's not just that our concept of religion is historically developing and our concept of science is historically developing, but there's also this thing of science and religion taken as a composite entity (laughs) which isn't simply reducible to the history of religion or the history of science. Um, Part of what happens in the Scopes trial is that people all agree that the Scopes trial is about religion and science, even when they don't agree on where the elements of religion are or where the elements of science are. And and so to some extent, I think what I'm trying to say is um, science and religion is more than just the sum of the components, science and religion, even even when we're sensitive to the fact that science individually and religion individually develop historically, um, that science and religion as this composite entity has a history that is is not just those. So the book actually goes into that history by giving 
what I, as at least from this reader's perspective, mm-hmm. found to be a very different and a very refreshing account of how the social movement against the teaching of evolution became emblematic of this um, science-religion conflict. And this is going to be a story, among other things, um, that's going to give us a window into a close reading, your very close reading, very interesting reading, of high school curricular materials, mm-hmm. especially around the discipline of biology. Yeah. Okay. So um, you talk early in the book also um, about all these things. You also talk early in the book about um, really the locality. Mm-hmm. So one of the sections of the first part of the, or the first chapter is why Dayton of all places? Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little, why Dayton of all places? What's special about this? What's not special about this? The, the people of Dayton actually issued this sort of promotional pamphlet that was, that was titled, why, or was informally titled, Why Dayton of All Places? And they tried to answer the question basically by saying Dayton, Tennessee is the quintessential American town, is this sort of, that basically to say that there was nothing bizarre or unique about Dayton, um, their goal was to promote the town as sort of, they, they quote from Main Street, USA. Um, and so they, they try to depict it as this kind of quintessential Americana. And that the debate between religion and science as this kind of epic, out-of-time, out-of-place event should happen in such a almost generic place. Um, but part of what I would try to argue is that despite that deliberate effort by the people of Dayton to portray their town this way. Um, it's one of the few kind of truly rural places in Tennessee that already has a long-running high school. Um, and in fact, at the time that the anti-evolution statute is being passed, the state of Tennessee is also considering legislation to build more rural high schools, to expand the school year, and that the anti-evolution law itself was tied up in that. Um, so Dayton, in some ways, was one of very few places in some cases where the specific, the specific issues over the expansion of compulsory education could have already found a voice. Um, and part of what I argue is that the anti-evolution movement is part of a larger pushback against the expansion of compulsory education. Right. And the fact of, um, I mean, you're mentioning the rural nature yeah. of Dayton um, is, is going to become really important. And one of the mm-hmm. really interesting things that happens over the course of the story is that the you know, this history that we have of education, of textbooks, of evolution, anti-evolution movements and evolutionary discourse becomes really interestingly um complicated in terms of urban versus rural localities. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that we'll talk about. And I think it adds a, a really important dimension to our larger way of understanding the importance of place and locality within the history of science and medicine. We're not always thinking about this in terms of rural, urban, and I think this is a really refreshing part of the story. Um, no, I, th- I thank you. I think that yeah, part of the story is sort of the idea that, you know, there's a reason why the Scopes trial doesn't occur in Nashville or Chattanooga or one of the larger cities, even though um, the people of Chattanooga, once Scopes was indicted, the people of Chattanooga, some people try to quickly have an anti-evolution trial there. Um, there. There is this kind of idea that the teaching of biology actually is itself kind of um, coincident with these kind of fundamental tensions between an urban industrial vision of America and 
sort of more rural agrarian vision of America as as its identity. Right. And as we'll we'll see and we'll talk about definitely over the course of um, the rest of the conversation, mm-hmm. the these differences between um, kind of modes of being in citizenship, urban and rural, actually are infused into how biology looks, at least as a yeah. as a part of the curriculum in this period, in a really fascinating way. And this was news to me, so mm-hmm. so we'll get there. But bef- but from our rural uh, environment of Dayton, what we move to next in the sort of opening of the main narrative of the story is we move to Jackson, Mississippi. Oh yes, the this is awesome. This is fabulous. <laughs> this is it, this becomes a kind of spy thriller with really unlikely protagonists and really unlikely characters. So I'm just going to sort of start out because this is such a great part of the book. The story begins in the Edwards Hotel in Jackson, mm-hmm. Mississippi. So why? So what's going on there? And can you set the stage for us? Mm-hmm. So one of the things I was really surprised to discover as I went close, went deeper and deeper into the history of American textbook publishing and use in this period um, was the extent to which this iconic vision of the corrupt textbook salesman was almost ubiquitous in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and so this scene that you're describing that the, begins the second chapter in, in the book um, involves um, the governor of Mississippi that uh, basically saying that it would be a financial savings and it would be an anti-corruption measure if the state took over the printing of educational matter for state schools. And the uh, regional manager of the largest textbook publisher in the period, the American Book Company, sent four textbook salesmen down to work as um, unregistered lobbyists. And apparently they also attempted to bribe members of the state legislature. The governor hires Pinkerton detectives to spy on these individuals. And so I I open with this scene (laughs) in which um, one of the detectives has basically – rented the hotel room adjacent to them and has unscrewed the electrical outlet and is just listening through the wall and recording their conversations. Um, textbook salesman. And, and textbook that's, salesman. that's the, yeah, I, I keep thinking that this is sort of like a Peter Laurie Humphrey Bogart scene. And yet the idea that this is this kind of spy thriller, but it's about textbook sales <laughs> seems like this bizarre juxtaposition of sort of the thriller and the totally mundane. Um, and yet there's a lot of these bizarre episodes. There's one, you know, since we're in Vancouver, there's one episode in which um, members of a textbook company who get accused of bribing a state commissioner in Washington State flee to British Columbia before they get arrested. Um, it's there's all these bizarre stories about textbook salesmen, and I didn't want to leave any of them out, but I had to because that's not what this book is primarily about. <laughs> Make a great novel, though, so keep this in mind when you write the big novel about right. it. Um, so what's happening in Mississippi at this time, and this is where we're focused, um, this is why mm-hmm. we're at the Edwards Hotel at this really wonderfully evocative moment. At this point, you, you describe how Mississippi is actually a major front in the battle over how to transform how textbooks are regulated in the U.S., and this becomes something that's actually um, that ripples down into then what's happening in Tennessee. And it really goes on to be a major factor in what's happening with the Scopes trial and afterwards. So can you talk a little bit about that? Where what What's up with textbook reform? Why is it such a big deal? And what do we need to know about that to understand what's going to happen next in um, Tennessee in this part of the book? So in the latter half of the 19th century, um, 
publishers that mar- mostly had served sort of regional audiences. You had publishers based in Chicago and Cincinnati and Boston and New York, and most of them really only served kind of regional markets, began to take on more and more of a national scope with the expansion of railroads, the expansion of publication, um, and the expansion of schooling as well, expansion of markets. Um, and this meant that more of them were directly competing with one another. Um, and there's a, a lot of concerns about the fact that basically textbook salesmen are engaged in all these various illegal enterprises and bribery schemes and so on. To some extent, that comes to a head in 1890 when the four largest educational publishers at the time basically merge and incorporate and form the American Book Company. And there's a lot of rhetoric around antitrust concerns and things like that that immediately follow. Um, and this question about whether or not the production of textbooks is a, a form of public good that ought to be regulated in a certain way. Um, but at the same time, it seems as though education has always been regarded as a state issue, not a federal issue. And so it's not – the federal government does not really address the issue of the textbook trust the way that it addresses the issues of monopoly and trust in other industries. Um, the, the result is, is that what a lot of states do is say we'll try to regulate the industry by creating uniform textbook adoptions or by basically fixing – the state itself will sign a contract with these publishers to fix certain prices for a set period of time. And this is really the beginning of the rise of statewide textbook adoption, which still persists in several states. Um, what's interesting is, is that, that was not initially about the regulation of content. I mean, nowadays, the issues you hear about the role that, say, the state of Texas plays in American textbook uh, production and regulation, um, nowadays there's a lot of controversy over the content of the history curriculum or the science curriculum. Initially, this wasn't about regulating content. It was about regulating cost, and it was about um, ostensibly regulating corrupt practices by the industry. But it becomes about content because once you have a state board that's making a decision that it's meant to be good for the entirety of the state, you, you need to try to decide what the state's best interests are. Um, and so when this happens in Tennessee – what you have is the selection of books that might be better suited for Nashville or Memphis than for places like Dayton. Um, that, that, that urban-rural issue becomes exacerbated by the fact that there's state-level adoption. Now, in this context where ultimately um, there's, a shift in, there's a shift towards efforts to regulate textbook uh, use by the state, right, at the level mm-hmm. of the state, what you have and what you describe here in ways that are really, really interesting and fascinating for me is a context in which, all right, so if uh, you know, a state is going to have the power to either buy the plates and print its own textbooks, mm-hmm. or it's going to have the power to decide, okay, everybody has to use X book to teach this, mm-hmm. you have now an increased role and increased power to shape curricula yeah. by salesmen. Mm-hmm. in a really, really interesting way that plays out in all kinds of cool ways for what happens next. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because I mean, part of the way I come into this is through the study of the history of, of print and history of the book as well. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that's said about there about the fact that you know the books themselves don't dictate their own readership. But there's something different about textbooks, partly because there are these structures of state regulation regulation and authorization. Um, I mean, literally, the state is giving an imprimatur. There's there's these, you know, stamps in the book that say this book has been 
purchased by the state of Tennessee or has been purchased based on a contract by the state of Tennessee. Um, and that changes the way that the books, you, I mean, textbooks are fundamentally different than other printed matter in part because of the social networks and the institutional networks that kind of regulate their use. And the fact that you have typically a juvenile audience, people who are not mature readers, who are not, who are learning discernment rather than have existing frameworks for discernment in place. Um, and so what this means is, is that especially with the state taking this active role in choosing the books, is the state is making decisions really about the regulation of these texts. Um, and for many people, the issue becomes who's deciding what my child's going to read. Um, and that itself is more controversial than the what itself. Um, it's more about who gets to make that decision. Right. So in, in taking off directly from what you mm -hmm. just said, um, as we focus into the particular aspect of the curriculum that the book focuses on, which is not you know, education broadly writ, but the biology curriculum in particular, what that means, how that changes, there are different points in the story at which different kinds of concerns over abuse of power to shape the curriculum emerge. And so one of the early examples, as we now get into sort of the biology curriculum, biology textbook in particular, that you talk about is an outcry um, by the community of other biology textbook authors over the publication of this book, Living Things in Elementary Biology, by yeah. Arthur Clement. So what, like, why, do you want to talk a little bit sure. about that? Sure. Um, so Arthur Clement was, um, well, so before he was a biology textbook author, he was the um, New York State um New York State Superintendent, or, or I guess Deputy Superintendent of Instruction, focused on the life si teaching science. Um, and there was some uproar among, I mean, what, one of the things that I think is interesting is that even though these different biology textbook authors were writing books for competing publishers, so their books were effectively competing on the market, many of them either taught at the same schools, a lot of them taught in New York City or near New York City. Um, and there's a lot of, it seems, collegiality between them, that, that there's a lot of they might disagree a little bit in how they present the subject, but there's kind of a coherent movement about what the new subject of biology ought to be. Mm -hmm. um, and so despite the fact that publishers are fierce rivals, they're, they're more collaborative than competitive in a certain way. Um, but here's a book that comes from somebody who sort of had an insider knowledge and was actually responsible for creating the state, New York state standards for biology instruction. And then suddenly comes out with a book that is directly adapted to those curricula, the curricula that he had been involved in writing. And these other authors basically say, you know, we've been trying to get a hold of the new standards and we were having difficulty doing that. And now we sort of feel like we know why. Um, and what's interesting about this is the, that episode um, really, I think, shows the way that these different authors regarded themselves as a kind of collaborative group. Um, I don't know that you would necessarily say that about the creators of other disciplines. And this is certainly, you know, none of these are people who we would say are sort of frontline biology. Like these are not frontline scientists. These are people with some background in science, but they're not typically kind of practicing scientists. Most of them are high school instructors. Some of them um, are working at universities, but in science education, not so much in a say, laboratory environment. Um, and what's interesting is, is that there's sort of a, 
a community that has certain values and has, has certain values about what science education should be and also about what education in general should be. Some of these people are heavily involved with the formation of the American Federation of Teachers and kind of the use of organized labor in professionalizing teaching. Um, many of them are sort of subscribing to sort of a John Dewey type model of education as a sort of form of sort of progressive citizenship um, and citizenship training. And those values are deeply nestled into the new biology curriculum. Now, you mentioned um, the new subject of biology, the new biology curriculum, and this is one of the really fascinating things about this part of the story is that biology was really undergoing dramatic, substantial changes as a part of the curriculum in this period, and this brings us into um, another really major textbook that became a point of contention and perhaps mm-hmm. our, our you know major point of contention this is george hunter's civic biology mm-hmm. this was published by abc the, um, american, book the american book company in 1914 and for various reasons this is going to wind up becoming at the center of our story um so so to, let's get to hunter mm-hmm. and his civic biology which is going to take us beyond first of all speaking of this new discipline of, or uh, rather a new way of um, conceiving biology. Um, what is civic biology and, and in what way is that new? And yeah. can you, can you talk about that? Well, I think, I mean, one of the, one of the main things that I think the book tries to argue against is this sort of myth of the idea that something like the Scopes trial was inevitable, basically from the moment Darwin wrote the origin of species that, um, that the ideas contained within the theory of evolution were so inherently incompatible with the Bible as people understood it that it was merely a matter of time before something like that trial happens. And one of the first things I observe is no one is making any effort to restrict the teaching of evolution until it's actually part of the curriculum. And so Hunter's textbook is one of the first textbooks that really brings evolution in in a in a really fundamental way. Um, but that's not the most important thing that it does. I mean, most of the most of the biology curricula are things that were called biology um, in the 1880s, 90s, and all the way into the first decade or so of the 20th century were largely separate semesters of botany and zoology. And the earliest books that used the word biology in the title were still basically half a book of botany, half a book of zoology, basically a sort of encyclopedic treatment of plants and then of animals. And then maybe one or two chapters of sort of hygiene and human physiology at the end. Um, Hunter's book and some of the other books that come immediately after basically throw that model out and say that there are some core things that plants and animals and human beings all have in common. We are, um, we all have metabolic processes. We are all composed of cells. The laws of heredity work in roughly the same way. The principle of evolution is there. And let's use those core concepts and begin that way and then talk about plants and animals and people together. Um, and so it's a really fundamental restructuring of biology, which is not just done for sort of abstracted reasons. It's done with a certain social end in mind. Um, and so this is where that kind of idea of sort of progressive citizenship and sort of citizenship training comes in is that when you're teaching about metabolism, you're teaching about things like a healthy diet or the dangerous effects of alcohol consumption. Um, And when you're teaching about heredity, you're talking about um, sort of issues like mate selection or even eugenics in some cases. Um, But you're also talking about sort of the development of plants and animals for agricultural industrial uses. Um, 
And when you're talking about um, cells, you're talking about things like bacteria and quarantine and and health and safety, basically. So the idea being that these core concepts of biology were organizing principles because they could be tied to social uses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this was particularly useful in an urban environment um, where where students didn't have a direct kind of relationship to plants and animals in quite the same way. Um, you know, if you're, if you're in an agricultural setting, it makes sense that plants and animals would be sort of discussed separately because animal husbandry and livestock culture and, and plant cultivation are, are fairly different processes. Um, so in some ways, this reorganization of the subject was intended to be for urban audiences, for ethnically diverse immigrants, primarily immigrant audiences for industrialized centers, um, places like New York City or Chicago particularly. Um, these were the places that were sort of envisioned as the, I mean, and that's what the civic part of civic biology, I mean, it's, it's, it's the civic um, in the sense of city sort of sense. Um, you know, and it would have worked fine perhaps for Memphis or Nashville or Chattanooga, but maybe less so for a place like Dayton. Right. Great. So at this point in the story, so now we've got, um, we're set with, okay, mm-hmm. who, or at least at the beginning of what's civic biology. Mm-hmm. All right. So dot, dot, dot. So if we were a graphic novel right now, it would, the, the, the caption would be, meanwhile, dot, dot, dot. So we'll, we're going to get back to Hunter and what's going on with civic biology because this becomes, actually his textbook becomes one of the major characters in this story. Absolutely. But meanwhile, the reason why it becomes a major character in the story has in part uh, a lot to do with what's happening in terms of anti-evolutionism and school reform in Tennessee at the same time. So let's talk about that. Sort of meanwhile, while this is happening, yeah. where are we in terms of anti-evolutionism and school reform in Tennessee? Um, yeah, so so on one hand, you've got this new curriculum of biology that's that's happening. And then on the other hand, you've also got this rush towards the centralization of textbook regulating, this, this, this rise of statewide adoption. And Tennessee had adopted, it was one of the first, one of the first southern states to go to state-level adoption. It went back, I think, in 1899, I say. Um, and so you've got those elements in place already. Um, but part of what you have in the 20s is, I mean, first of all, Hunter's book gets adopted in 1919, five years after it comes out, but that the first major adoption cycle for Tennessee after it comes out, uh, which is not uncommon. I mean, the book was fairly rapidly a success, even though even though by the time we get to the middle of the twenties, it's almost 10 years old. It's already look, it, it's already pretty obsolete. Um, other publishers have come out with books that take the same idea that Hunter's book has, um, but either they've updated the specific details or they've done it a little bit better. They, um, or they're just newer. And so they, they are perceived as a little bit fresher. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the story of what happens in Tennessee is that there's this effort uh, particularly by the governor Austin P to sort of um, reform and expand education as a means of modernizing the state. Um, this was not uncommon for for states that saw themselves either as um, underdeveloped economically or underdeveloped educationally, um, and it was part of a larger coherent program of road building and and, and building infrastructure. Um, but also building the educational infrastructure to have basically the resources to modernize as a state. Um, and so this is actually where I opened the book is with this story 
in which the governor really wants to campaign for re-election in 1924, in, in 1924 on the issue of, of education reform and expanding the school year and building more schools and making school more available um, to people, particularly in the rural parts of the state. But he discovers a few uh, a few months before that's going to happen that that 1919 adoption of, of not just the biology textbook, but of all textbooks, that contract's about to expire in 1924. And because they had locked in prices five years earlier, people were going to face a de facto rise of almost 50% in the price of textbooks. And this would happen a month and a half before the election, which was just politically not the best time to be saying we should be raising taxes in order to support more schooling. Um, and so he and the Commissioner of Education come up with this idea that because the contract doesn't expire until the end of August, and many of the schools will have either already opened or be just about to open, that they could effectively squeeze a sixth year out of the five-year adoption cycle, mm-hmm. um, which is politically astute. It's, 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 it's a brilliant solution that they, they have. Um, one unintended consequence of this is that it leaves Hunter's book in the hands of Tennessee school children. Um, six years after it was adopted and oh, and 11 years after it was published. And I think part of one of the things I argue is that if you look at what was available for adoption, if they'd done an adoption in 24, other textbook publishers were a lot more, were becoming sensitive to the idea that there was concern over evolution and they were finding ways of trying, basically trying to pacify these anti-evolution elements, either by saying, you know, there's nothing in Darwinism that's fundamentally new, either saying this is a very old idea or saying that Darwin was himself sort of a religious person or to say that evolution was, um, you know, a fundamentally conservative idea in some ways. Um, people of Tennessee didn't even have a chance to consider those books. And it may have been the case. It's hard to play counterfactual games with history. Right. But... Um, it looks like if you look at what was going on in 23 and 24, in early 25, the textbook industry was beginning to respond to the anti-evolution movement in a way that perhaps the anti-evolution movement would have considered a win um, or at least a partial victory. They, they, that people like William Jennings Bryan actually thought that the, the key to victory for anti-evolution was not in getting these anti-evolution laws passed so much as getting the, in, the textbook content to change. And that if the textbook content changed, then it wouldn't really matter what the individual states did um, because they would be choosing from these books. And so in some ways, the anti-evolution movement was about to win or at least to, to partially win. Um, but because of the postponement of that adoption in Tennessee, that victory didn't show up you know, in the halls of Nashville until it was too late. Thank you. So this is the context that we're dealing with when we come to now um, the main event, like mm-hmm. the, the good show, as, <laughs> as it's described in the book by some of the people you're talking about. And this was the Scopes trial. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a little bit about it. We've now um, talked about sort of what's happening in terms of the a little bit. What ha- what's happening in terms of this new way of conceiving biological curricula as civic biology? Um, mm-hmm. We've talked about the civic biology as a new textbook, and we'll talk more about that. Yeah. We've talked also about the context of school reform in Tennessee mm-hmm. and the kind of dual factors that are happening within that larger context of, on the one hand, 
kind of general education bill, um, mm-hmm. which is making education compulsory and, and all these other kinds of things, while at the same time there's um, a sort of strong interest among some people in um, promoting anti-evolutionism. Mm-hmm. Right? So all of this is coming together, and now we are in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, so we've talked a little bit about who Scopes was, um, you've mentioned that um, a little bit about how he gets involved in this in the first place, and that actually, you know what, it's kind of a foregone conclusion that he's going to be found guilty, right? I mean, mm-hmm. people are not arguing over the course of the trial about whether he's guilty. He did teach this stuff he wasn't technically mm-hmm. supposed to teach. He's not actually um, the one who's on trial, as you argue in the book. Right. It's really this textbook of civic biology that's on trial. Yeah, I mean, during the trial, I mean, in Scope's own memoir, he he recalls this incident where they ask him if he'll participate in the trial, and he says, I don't really remember if I actually taught evolution until we went back and looked at the textbook. Um, and so one of the things that I point out is that there's this very quick assumption, virtually by everyone, that as it is in the textbook, so it is in the classroom. Um, even by Scope's, if it was in the textbook, that's what I taught. When Governor P signs the anti-evolution bill into law, he says there's nothing in the textbooks that are currently in use in the state, which is Hunter's book, um, that would put teachers in peril. Um, and so there's, again, the assumption that as it is in the textbooks, that's that's going to be what it is in the classroom. Even though the law, the law doesn't prohibit the use of textbooks to teach evolution, the law prohibits the act of teachers teaching evolution. It's the first, it's the first anti-evolution statute um, that criminalizes behavior. I mean, there was an anti-evolution resol- uh, resolution tied to textbooks in Oklahoma before this and a non-binding one in Florida, but this is the first one that really makes a criminal trial possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so despite that, it, it, it quickly gets not to what did John Scopes actually do in that classroom. It gets to what is in this textbook. And um, in the one of the major speeches that William Jennings Bryan gives at the trial um, as an attorney assisting the prosecution and and litigating for anti-evolutionism, he's attacking the book itself. He's quoting passages from the book, and he's sort of saying, here in the book you will find that humans are placed amongst mammals, which I I argue is Brian sort of reading it through a particular uh, set of preconceptions about what the book is saying and meaning. but one of the main issues that comes up during the trial is the role that the book plays. Um, initially, I really, I think, wanted to write a book that was sort of about the Scopes trial with ever act, with, without ever actually getting to the trial. Um, and I completely failed. There's this one chapter that is dealing specifically with And I realized I had to do that because even though there are many and some very, very good accounts of the trial itself, which is why initially I thought I'd get away without doing that, um, this particular issue of how the how the textbook and how the way people perceive the authority of textbooks in the trial needed to be kind of traced through all of that. Um, and so even though I really like the idea of sort of writing the history of the trial from the sort of parallax views of places like Jackson, Mississippi, or New York where textbook editors are hearing about it, or in California where textbook authors are based, mm-hmm. um, at some point, I did have to kind of come to Dayton, um, and that, and that's what's going on. Well, I think one of the really great things about that, and I, I totally get where you're going with this plan of, like, what if we just don't go into the courtroom and don't go to mm-hmm. the trial? One of the really great things that comes out of your taking us there is showing us 
how it, it does a kind of work that the book wouldn't do if this chapter weren't there in helping to unseat some of the assumptions about the trial and about what was going on there that yeah. readers may be coming to the book with. And so you're actually giving us a completely different picture mm-hmm. of what was actually happening in that courtroom than we would have if you didn't take us in there. Yeah. Um, and by and large, um, you know, part of the reason why I didn't want to dwell too long on Dayton is because there are some very good works that do that work already. And by and large, what I see this book doing is sort of running in parallel and in a, in a way kind of complementing existing scholarship on the trial rather than contesting most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some points of, of contest. I mean, there are, there are some points of disagreement. I think particularly the kind of climactic scene of the trial, which is this very, very famous exchange between William Jennings Bryan, sort of, you know, the effective leader of anti-evolutionism in America at this point, um, and Clarence Darrow, who is John Scopes, one of his attorneys. Um, this bizarre scene that, that is well represented in Inherit the Wind, although distortedly, um, and in other scholarship where um, William Jennings Bryan agrees to get up on the witness stand um, despite being an attorney for the prosecution to defend the Bible against the anti the the anti biblical version or the, the this pro evolutionist uh, that Darrow has come to represent um, and typically I mean inherit the wind portrays this as sort of you know this this blustering fool of a character um, who's you know not just incoherent but is is physically kind of in complete loss of control of, of his body and this sweating and this sort of um, kind of, you know, gibbering sort of person. Um, I mean, and, um, and, you know, kind of being slowly dis- dismantled and, and completely, you know, to the disappointment of all of his fans in the stands, so to speak. Um, I mean, and even kind of more sober scholarship has sort of portrayed this as something like a cat and mouse game. Um, Brian was a brilliant orator, but he wasn't quick on his feet. And so he was just, you know, it was the death of a thousand cuts and he was just slowly falling apart. And what I really try to argue is that that's not it at all. I mean, that, that what's going on there is that Brian and Darrow have such fundamentally different ideas about basically what religion is and what science is that their discussions over things like what it means for the Bible to be true is actually just based speaking past one another mm-hmm. that, um, for Brian, the truth of the Bible isn't because I read this, I interpret it literally, and I evaluate its claims to be true. For Brian, the truth of the Bible established is established by faith in the fact that God is the is the author of every word of the Bible. That that that's what literalism means for Brian. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about the authorship, not about readership. Mm-hmm. Whereas for Darrow, the idea that the Bible is literally true means I can read this, I can interpret this. I can also then show you how silly some of the things are. Um, and that's not what Brian means by saying the Bible's true or, or not true. There's, there's plenty of points where, Bible, where Brian basically says, the Bible is true. I have faith that it's true. I don't necessarily claim to know exactly what this passage means, but I have no, no less faith in the truth of it for, for that lack of knowledge. Um, so there's a real fundamental difference between the two about what it means to hold the text to be authoritative or to hold the text to be true or to read a text even mm-hmm. um, that means that they're actually just speaking past one another for most of that exchange. 
um, and that those, those issues of how you read a book and what it means to hold the book as authoritative are some of the same issues that I say come up later, not just about the Bible, but also about this, these other authoritative these these other authoritative books, these textbooks that get, exactly. get used later. So let's let's actually go there, and I'll yeah. footnote um, that in. Um, in a couple of ways, um, one footnote is you mentioned sober scholarship, and I just have to, you know, add a footnote that mm-hmm. this scene between William Jennings Bryan and Darrow is precisely the scene that is shown in the most recent or one of the most recent um, episodes of Drunk History. So we've got sober and not sober accounts of this. Um, and, <laughs> and also you mentioned the importance of authorship um, as an issue. And this is so that we can actually get to um, get through yeah. the end of the book. I won't ask you to talk about this, but there is I will mention that there's a great chapter on um, Hunter and on mm-hmm. his authorship of the civic biology and also his editing of that to create a new civic biology that really takes us into um, the importance of understanding it, as you show us here, the authorship of one of these books is being not just and not not only about the person whose name is on the cover, and right. it winds up being a really complicated, really complex, very mm-hmm. rich story of who gets to control um, the content of what happens mm-hmm. in a book, even that's published under the name of, right. of you know Hunter, for example. Yeah, um, actually, while I was while I was a graduate student, I worked as a textbook editor oh, for really? a couple of years. Yes, I mean this was actually. I, I took that job after I started working on this project. So I was partly in, I mean, it was a, I was editing seventh grade mathematics textbooks at Chicago. And, um, you know, I, I, when I first read the correspondence between Hunter and his editors in New York and the sales agents who were working all around the country, you know, initially I, I had this sort of idealist view of, you know, this is an author who wants to make sure his book is accurate and is, is sort of devoted to the truth. And he's being, um, hounded by these people who just want to make a quick buck. And after I worked as a textbook editor, I said, you know, he has no rea- no sense of reality is about the way publishing works and he has no respect for deadlines and he doesn't really understand the role that textbooks play once they're written. Um, and so I, I think, you know, I, I developed a bit of additional sympathy for the role of the editor. Um, I, I can't imagine why. But... Um, <laughs> But one of the things that I, I learned both from doing that um, myself and then also by, by looking at these exchanges between authors, editors, sales people, outside reviewers, and all of these other people is this very composite nature of authorship. Um, and the extent to which some of the people who are in, heavily involved in, in the act of authorship cloak their involvement and others become sort of symbols of that involvement. So, you know, Hunter's name is on the spine of the book. Um, That's not to say that Hunter agreed to all of the changes that went into the new civic biology, which came out after the Scopes trial. Um, It's not, I mean, and some of them were done over his protest. Some of them, you know, some of them were things that he never even really was aware of until after the fact. Um, You know, I think one, there's, there's one exchange where, you know, there's this line about, you know, let's add a line about the fact that human beings, unlike any other animals, have moral instincts. Hunter never added that line. There, there's been some people who said this is an example of a line that Hunter added to appease the anti-evolutionists. Hunter opposed this, but this line was actually taken from a different American book company book um, at the suggestion of um, an outside reviewer who was a superintendent of instruction in the state of Kentucky 
who told the sales agent, you know, a line like this would be good in this book. And that got sent up the chain of command to the editors where they said, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea to put it in there. Mm -hmm. If we obviously we agree with that line, it's in one of our other books. There's no reason not to put it in. But Hunter never added that line. Um, You know, there's this, this tendency to attribute to the author everything in a book. And of course, talking about my own book, it's like, I can see plenty of things that are in this book, you know, which I, I know where they came from. And, you know, I, I agreed to put them all in there, but, but the ideas for them are obviously drawn from a variety of sources. And Hunter, um, and I'll just sort of mention this for people who like a good story about people. There are a lot mm-hmm. of really interesting people in this book. And one of the things yeah. that's happening is he's actually doing these edits while he's on unpaid leave traveling after nearly, as he reported it, as, as I read it in here, yeah. nearly having a nervous breakdown. And so just the con- the conditions yeah. under which these edits are um, being and these mm-hmm. conversations are happening are themselves really, really fascinating. Yeah, there's this, there's this. I mean, that's the thing is that I, I as I, as you go into the correspondence, especially, you begin to realize like these are individuals with very human ambitions and human senses of understanding, and and you know nobody is going out of their way either to be kind of like completely unreservedly virtuous or malicious. <laughs> um, you know, it's not the case that like evil editors or evil salesmen care nothing more about making money, but they're worried about their own livelihoods. And they're also, you know, as one of the editors sort of says, none of us are out of sympathy with your political ideals, but we can write a book that sidesteps these questions. Not that we're going to say anything that is not true either. Um, I mean, they're disagreeing perhaps about the role that is involved in, in what the book should be and what, you know, I think one of the big issues that, that comes up is that, um, you know, George Hunter keeps saying, I've talked to teachers. I know what teachers want, but teachers aren't the ones who are just making decisions about what textbooks to use. And so that's not what's relevant. What's relevant is, you know, the editor getting reports that, um, you know, we've lost the, we've lost the book adoption in Detroit because the book isn't ready yet and we have nothing to submit. Um, and the other publishers are, are winning. We're losing sales and we need something to be out already. And, um, you know, and basically kind of behind that is like, there are people who are fighting for their livelihoods because if they're not making sales, they're not going to keep their jobs. Now, as we come to the the last chapters of the book, um, I'll just mention chapter Mm -hmm. seven and then we'll move to chapter eight, but there's this really wonderful chapter um, that is not just of interest inherently, but also, is going to be particularly fascinating for anybody interested in book history mm-hmm. and print history. This is a chapter that looks at the ways that this climate of anti-evolutionism um, debates really impacted materially yeah. um, on, you know, on an individual page um, mm-hmm. in, in a couple of really amazing cases that you show us how biology textbooks that were published around the t- time of the scope trial actually looked. Yeah. Um, and there's a sort of a great description um, here or account showing how publishers actually opt for like the, the quick and dirty way out of this, which is they mm-hmm. just excise the terminology of evolution from the text. Right. But then you're, show, you're showing, I mean, in, by putting side-by-side images of the corresponding text before and after excision, mm-hmm. how this actually looked and how this changed the content of what was there. Yeah, I, the, I think my favorite example of this is um, – there's one in which the only men- I mean the only mention of evolution in in the 1924 version of the book, the prescopes version, was in 
the, the last chapter of the book was sort of like great, great figures in biology. And of course, Darwin was mentioned. And so there's a long paragraph or two paragraphs about Darwin that, of course, mention his discovery of the theory of evolution, the publication of The Origin, and some of the other things that he does. In the next version, in the 1925, in the late 1925 post-Scopes version, um, Darwin is attributed as sort of the author of several different works, none of which that are mentioned are the origin or the descent or even the expression of emotion in man and animals. Um, but it, it goes on to mention his work on orchids. It mentions you know, his very interesting essay on earthworms. And basically the idea there was to fill up about five lines of space so that the rest of that chapter could be kept as so that basically the paragraph would end in the exact same space so that they wouldn't have to print make plates or print new pages of the rest of the book. Um, and it's a place where the sort of the physicality of the book really determines what gets put in there, um, which, yeah, it's a, it's a really bizarre, um, but also just lovely example. I think like you're saying, of sort of like the, the physicality of the book really. It's totally uh, fabulous. And for listeners who have, um, we're going to run out and get their own copies. And I, I hope that, most or all <laughs> listeners do, either from the library or from their bookstore, <laughs> you can find these comparative images on pages 142 and 3 and pages mm-hmm. 144 and 5 of the book, and they're yeah. totally worth it. I mean, that's, that's worth the price of admission right there. <laughs> fabulous, fabulous example. Okay, so as yeah. we come to the conclusion of the <laughs> book and of the conversation, um, and one of the things I'll just mention before we get to the, the end here is that one of the ironic twists to the stories in, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about Hunter's revision of the book, Tennessee's first post-scopes textbook adoption in 1931 mm-hmm. actually included the, the revised edition the of the thing. very book that you know, had caused all these problems. And mm-hmm. so, um, holy cannolis. I mean, this is, is that, oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting part of the story. I mean, there there is a... There's a lot of iron. There's a lot of ironies that I find kind of going throughout this history. I mean, I think the fact that what many of the textbook publishers, including what Hunter, they they cease to use the word evolution, but in some cases, you know, the same paragraph that formerly said this theory of evolution says that um, is replaced with this theory of heredity and development says mm-hmm. that, and the rest of the paragraph is the same. Mm-hmm. You. It, you'd be hard pressed to look at that and say this isn't teaching the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other, the compounding irony is that, of course, the Tennessee law doesn't actually prohibit the teaching of evolution. The law itself only really prohibits the teaching of human descent from a non-human ancestor. Um, and I think irony of the greatest of ironies is the fact that Hunter Civic Biology actually never really explicitly says that, right. um, and that. You know, I, I nobody was interested in doing this, but I think if if they had been, they, you could make the case that even if John Scopes taught every single word out of Hunter's textbook, he never actually broke the law. Um, right. You know. So, so that's I, I think that's perhaps the the biggest. You know, one of the great ironies at the very end is just that all of this was based on this kind of I want to say misunderstanding, but. What's interesting is the way that the law and what the law means gets reinterpreted at the same time that reading these books and what it means for these books to contain evolution is also being reinterpreted. Well, there's a a final chapter here, and Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask you to talk too much about that just so that I cannot take many, many hours of your time, um, as pleasant as that would Mm. be. 
Um, but in this final chapter, you mention, and so I just want to put this out there for listeners, another really important historiographical point, which is, again, you're reorienting us as readers and those of us who are historians of science and medicine, also reorienting us um, away from un- trying to understand the consequences of all of this for textbooks and education just by looking at content mm-hmm. and showing the importance of trying to understand not just what these textbooks said, but how they're read yeah. and how they're used, how they're taught. Um, and that's a really important part of the story, which actually involves a different kind of evidentiary yeah. Burden and base, um, and it's and it's hard. It's hard to get into the classroom of the early 1930s and say, so how did students themselves experience this? Um, and I struggled with that because it is very difficult to get that kind of evidence. But what is not that hard to get is sort of what the people who sold the book perceived as being that, or what teachers or regulators perceived. There's something interesting in the fact that the state of Tennessee could adopt a book that talks about this theory of heredity and development mm-hmm. and say, this book is now acceptable to us despite having an anti-evolution law in the books because it doesn't teach evolution. Um, so there's a certain expectation about the way in which teachers and students will read these books um, and use those books. And, you know, it's, just like the fact that the authorship of the books kind of renders invisible the agency of editors and salespeople and feedback providers. The readership, I mean, the, the book themselves also renders invisible the ways in which students and teachers are actually using them in the classroom. Um, and so part of what I want to do is just kind of bring those invisible actors back into visibility in a way um, to, 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 recognize that the communication circuit, so to speak, that includes um, all of these different individuals, including the state as a regulator of the text, um, are all involved in the process of making meaning out of the fact that we're using this object in some institutionally prescribed way. Great. Well, as we, um, I'll just mention this um, and not ask you about it so that we can come to our last few questions, but um, the, the very end of the book, considers and looks at, you know, briefly how this scopes president, uh, precedent actually impacts other state and local yeah. efforts in, in recent decades to mm-hmm. dictate modes of reading and teaching biology textbooks that, as you put it, undermine their evolutionary content. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to ask you to, to talk too much about it. I want to just drop that in there and mention for, re- for listeners, mm-hmm. go read the book because <laughs> you will find some attention to this too. And I think it's one of the many, many ways that the book actually speaks to an ongoing set of issues that aren't just about right now, but are about um, what we can expect to think, be thinking about in the future as well. So it's a very resonant book in, in that way. So Adam, yes. now that we are at the end of our time, um, there's a ton of stuff in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Sure. It's a very rich story. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk oh. about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Uh-huh. One of the things that I think I, I really enjoyed, in fact, it's the place sort of where I started doing the work, was, was as you mentioned, sort of this... This, this this story of sort of George Hunter and sort of the the reaction the post trial basically part of it, um, in which you've got this, I I really enjoyed because I have such fun archival material and sort of these fantastic kind of words that I'm taking from the voices of these other people um, about how they're arguing over the revision and how they that you I think the human personalities of 
assistant editors and salespeople and textbook authors all sort of come together. Um, and you begin to see it as, as this, it's this very human story. I mean, I, I look at that correspondence and I feel like, you know, I have a sense of who these people are and why they, why they were considering things the way that they were. Um, and I just, I really, I mean, in some ways that was, the, that's, I think the most human element is when you get down to the level of like, um, the sort of emotional relationship between Hunter and the editor-in-chief of the American Book Company, who have a very tumultuous relationship over the year and a half that they're talking about revising this book after this guy's trial. Um, and it's a very complex sort of inter-emotional and professional relationship. And there's some great moments in there where, and I'm, I'm completely paraphrasing here, so mm-hmm. understand that, but you show sort of letters back and forth where, you know, Hunter will write something, and the editor, uh, and, you know, Hunter's clearly very heated about what he feels about the editorial suggestions. And the editor writes back and he's like, the editor's basically like, okay, you know, fine. I'm trying to be professional. Nice, nice, nice. But also maybe you shouldn't be such a jerk in the way you're talking to me. And then Hunter writes back and effectively, and I'm paraphrasing is like, well, yeah, I totally agree with you. Okay, fine. My bad. But also you shouldn't be such a jerk. And then it kind of continues on and it shows this, um, the kind of relationship that I think is, is kind of, typical among colleagues who are who have an extended relationship with each other who are struggling over how to negotiate some really difficult very passionate kinds of issues yeah these are people they're not just symbolic kind of stand-ins for different perspectives and viewpoints they're human beings and i think it's really important that we don't lose sight of that when we're trying to write the history of something that especially something that portrays itself as being epic and you know, the whole idea of science and religion is supposed to like being sort of transcendent of individual personalities. No, down at the heart of it, this is all individual human beings. You know, science and religion don't fight except when people use them to fight. So, Adam, now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book. What's next for you? What projects are Um, currently occupying you? So I've been... Uh, so I mentioned actually very early on in the book uh, the fact that the Scopes trial was not actually the first evolution trial in America. Um, and I only mentioned for about a paragraph in Trying Biology. Um, but there was actually a civil trial in Nebraska about nine months earlier involving a teacher who had lost his job because people in that town had basically said that he was unfit to be a teacher because he was a Darwinist. Um, and he sued them for slander, and he won. Um, but I've been working more about uh, finding details about him and about people in that trial. Um, I, I sort of jokingly described that this is sort of uh, inherit the wind meets the cheese and the worms a little bit. It's a sort of micro-historical account of this trial that takes place around this very small town in Nebraska. Um, and so actually in some ways it's it's arguing the other side of the fact that the Scopes trial was not this inevitable expression of religion and science, because in some ways this is a Scopes trial that didn't turn into the great s- sensation. But it's also, I think, revising or, or, or complicating the story about kind of the rural versus urban geography of this, because part of what I'm discovering is that you know, the way people were dealing with questions about Darwin or evolution in rural Nebraska versus the way they were in this teacher's home state grew up in rural Pennsylvania, um, that there's a lot of regional variation as well as the urban and rural variation. And so how does, I mean, and and so part of this is dealing with how say German American immigrant communities in Nebraska are negotiating questions about religion and science and how those are different than people in other parts of the state. So it's, 
Um, that's the the project that I'm now trying to work on is this this, this other story, this other trial that was completely obscure and was completely I, I stumbled across one reference to it while I was working on this book and now I'm following that up. Great. Well best of luck with that project. It also sounds totally great and we'll hopefully talk when that book's out. Yeah. And so in the meantime it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.